Well, howdy, and welcome to another edition of Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad. <laughs> Chapter 3 An Unexpected Return Counterfeit, Chet burst out. Counterfeit? It can't be. I just drew the money out of the bank this morning. The Hardys, nonplussed, stared at the $20 bill Mr. Reed was holding. I'm sorry, Chet, Mr. Reed said sympathetically. But a few days ago, all the storekeepers in town were notified by the police to be on the lookout for fake 20s. Otherwise, I wouldn't have checked it. I can't understand it, though. Why didn't the bank detect it? Frank's mind raced. Wait a minute, he exclaimed. Chet, what about the man you made change for at the station? You're right, Frank. Joe put it, he must have passed Chet the phony 20. You mean he gave it to me on purpose? Chet asked in dope. All gently. It's possible, Frank said. Of course, it would be pretty hard to prove whether he did it intentionally or not. What did the man look like? Joe questioned Chet. We only caught a glimpse of him running for the train. He was medium height and stocky. Did you notice anything else about him? Chet thought for a few seconds. Then he said, I do remember that the man had a sharp nose, but he was wearing sunglasses and a slouch hat, so I didn't notice much else. The Hardys tried to fix a picture of the man in their minds, Meanwhile, Chet looked gloomily at the bogus bill. What luck, he complained. Here I am cheated out of $20 and the microscope. I'm sorry, Chet, Mr. Reed said. I wish there was something I could do about it. Don't worry, Chet, said Joe. You'll get the microscope. Hope oh, anyway, he turned to his brother. How much money you have with you, he asked. I have fifty. Frank emptied his pockets, but all he had was three dollars in change and bills. We'll lend you what we have, Joe offered, eight fifty. Although Chet protested, the Hardys insisted, Mr. Reed added. You can take the microscope along and pay me the balance when you can. Frank and Joe put their money on the counter while Mr. Reed went to wrap the instrument. Thanks, you're real pals, Chet said gratefully. When the store owner returned with the package, Chet said, I'll go right down to Dad's office and borrow the balance. We'll get back here later this afternoon. Thanks very much, Mr. Reed. The boys were about to leave when Frank had a sudden thought. Mr. Reed, he said, would you let us borrow that counterfeit bill for some close study? We'll be sure to turn it over to Chief Collin. Like, swell idea, Joe said. The proprietor, who was 
familiar with the Hardy's reputation as sluice, readily assented. Frank put the bill in his pocket, and the boys left the store. They hurried back to Chet's car and drove to Mr. Morton's real estate office several blocks away. The office was on street level of a small building. They entered and were greeted pleasantly by Mr. Morton's efficient secretary, Miss Benson. Hello, boys. Enjoying your summer vacation? Yes, thanks, Miss Benson, Chet said, eyeing his father's empty desk. When will Dad be back? Your father's gone for the day, Chet, she replied. He decided to go home early. Well, that's funny, Chet mused. Dad usually stays till five, at least. We have time to drive out to the farm before we meet the train, Joe said. Let's go. The Morton farm was on the outskirts of Bayport. When Chet swung the car into the driveway, Joe noticed with pleasure that Lola, Chet's sister, was waving to them from the front porch. Dark-haired Lola, slim and vivacious, was Joe's favorite date. When they told her about the counterfeit bill, she exclaimed, What a shame! Joe agreed epithetically, and we'd sure like to get a lead on the man who passed it to Chet. Sounds as if you hardies are in the mood for some sleuthing, Lois said, twinkle in her eye. What's this about sleuthing? Sleuthing asked attractive Miss Morton as she came outside and joined the group. The boys quickly explained. Then Chad asked his mother, is dad around? He isn't here right now. He's attending to an important job, Chet. Chet looked disappointed until his sister giggled. Said, dad's not too far away. Lola winked at her mother and they both began to laugh. Your father's important job is at his favorite fishing spot, Miss Morton told Chet. Fishing? He never goes fishing during the week, Chet exclaimed. Well, he did this time, said Mrs. Morton. I guess the good weather was too much for him to resist. A few minutes later, the boys were in the jalopy and driving down a country road bordered by woods. Half a mile further, Chet stopped and turned off the Queen's engine. The sound of rushing water could be heard. This is the spot, Chet announced, and they started off through the woods. They soon came to a clear running stream, spotted Mr. Morton seated contentedly on the bank. He was leaning against a tree, holding his rod lightly between his knees, Steadying it with his hands. Just as the boys called a greeting to him, the line began to jerk, and almost immediately the rod bent. Tip was close to the water. Mr. Morton leaped to his feet and shouted, Just a minute, fellows, I've hooked a Lulu. <laughs> Mr. Morton was an expert. He let the fish take just enough line to bury the hook properly. Then he gently braked the reel with his thumb. So intent was Mr. Morton on his fishing, 
He was not aware that his son was now rushing down the slope toward him. Suddenly, Chet slipped on a moss-covered rock, fell forward, lost his grip on the box containing the microscope, and it flew toward the water. Joe, behind Chet, leapt forward and grabbed the box. Phew! Chet exclaimed, regaining his balance. Good work, Joe. Thanks a million. The three boys joined Mr. Morton, who was busy landing his catch, a fine, small-mouthed black bass. He held up the fish for them to admire. Isn't it a beauty, boys? Well, it's terrific, Dad, Chet replied, still out of breath from his near, near tumble. I've got something to show you. He unwrapped the package and held out the microscope. Mr. Morton put the fish in his creel and studied the instrument closely. Well, it's a top-notch one, son, he declared. Just the model you wanted. Yes, Dad, only there's a slight problem connected with it. Oh, oh, Mr. Morton chuckled good-naturedly. Should have known no on... Should have known from the look on your face you didn't have enough money after all. Well, how much was it you need? That isn't all there is to it. Chet hastened to inform him and told him about the counterfeit bill. Mr. Morton's face darkened. I hope we're not in for a flood of phony bills. Frank nodded. Especially since they are very clever imitations. Chet's father handed over $20 in small bills. Thanks, Dad. From now on, Chet, be careful about making change for strangers, Mr. Morton cautioned. I will, his son promised fervently. Getting cheated once is enough. Chet paid the Hardys the money they had lent him. Then he said to his father, I was sure surprised when Mother told me you were fishing in the middle of the week. Mr. Morton smiled broadly. I've been working hard the past year on the big sale of land to Elkin Controls. Oh, he said. I thought it, thought it was time to take an afternoon off, do some thinking while the fish were nibbing. Isn't that the property in the back of the plant they just finished building? Frank asked. That's right, Mr. Morton pointed upstream. You can just see the top of the main building from here. The property you sold has the old Turner Mill on it, Joe remarked. Quite a contrast. A company that makes top-secret control parts for space missiles in a modern building right next to an ancient abandoned grist mill. I suppose they'll tear the old place down, Frank remarked. No, Elk. Elkton has decided to use it, Mr. Morton went on. I suggested to them that the old mill would make it an attractive gatehouse for the plant's rear entrance. After all, it's a historic place built by the settlers when this whole area was inhabited by Indians. The company has renovated the old mill a bit, restoring the old living quarters and adding modern facilities. Is someone living there? Joe asked with interest. 
I understand a couple of their employees are, Mr. Morton replied. Then he continued. They've even repaired the wheel, so it's turning again. Hearing the rushing water and the grinding of the wheel's gear mechanism brought back memories to me. About the Indians, Dad? Chet joked. Not quite, son, his father smiled. But I can remember when the mill produced the best flour around her. Your grandmother made many delicious loaf of bread from wheat ground in the Turner Mill. Well, that's for me, Chet said. Everyone laughed as Mr. Morton reminisced further, having seen the mill in full operation when he was a boy. Suddenly, he and the Hardys noticed that Chet had fallen silent. There was a familiar, faraway look in his eyes. Joe grinned. Chet, you turned over some new idea over in your mind. That's right, Chet said excitedly. I've been thinking maybe I could get a summer job at Elk at Elkton. <laughs> Mr. Morton exchanged amazed glances with the Hardys at the thought of Chet's working during the summer vacation. But with growing enthusiasm, Chet went on. I could earn the twenty dollars I owe you, Dad. Besides, if I'm going to be a scientist, I couldn't think of a better place to work. Elkton's a fine company, his father said. I wish you luck, son. Thanks, Dad, Chet smiled broadly. See you later. I have to go now and pay Mr. Reed the money I owe him. On the drive back to town, Chet told Frank and Joe that he was going to apply for a job at the Elkerton plant the next day. We'll go along, Joe offered. I'd like to see the plant in the old mill. Swell, said Chet. When they reached the shopping area in Bayport, Chet drove directly to Mr. Reed's store. The three boys had just aligned from the parking car when Chet excitedly grabbed his friend's arm. There he is, the chubby boy exclaimed, right down the street, the man who gave me that phony twine. Chapter 4 The Shadowy Visitor There he goes, across the street, Joe said excitedly. Let's ask him about the counterfeit bill. The three boys broke into a run, dodging in and out of the crowd of afternoon shoppers. The Hardys kept their eyes trained on the stocky figure of their quarry but their chase was halted at the corner by a red traffic light against them. The street was congested with vehicles, and it was impossible for the boys to get across. What luck, Joe growled impatiently. Seemed to be the longest red light they had ever encountered. When it changed, the three some straight across the street, but it was too late. The stocky man was lost to sight. The Hardys raced down the next two blocks, peering in every direction but to no avail. Disappointed, Frank and Joe went back to Chet, who had stopped to catch his breath. We lost him, Joe reported tersely. Frank's eyes narrowed. 
I have a hunch that the man who passed the bogus $20 bill to Chet knew it was counterfeit. That last second dash for the train was just a gimmick to make a fast getaway. But his showing up here in Bayport a couple hours after he took the train ain't out of town is mighty peculiar. Joe and Chet agreed. He probably got off in Bridgeport, Frank went on. That's the nearest big town. As the boys walked back toward the scientific specialty store, they speculated about the source of the supply of bogus money. Maybe it's in Bridgeport, Frank said. That could mean one of the reasons he took the train. Ain't there to get a new supply or to palm off more. You mean they might actually make the stuff there? Chet asked. Frank shrugged. Could be, he said. I hope no more counterfeit bills are passed in Bayport. There probably will be, Chet said ruefully. If this town is full of easy marks like me, let's just keep a sharp lookout for that fake money passer from now on, Joe said, and other clues to the counterfeit ring. Who knows, Chet put in. It could turn out to be your next case. As soon as Mr. Reed had been paid, hey, the boys drove to Bayport Police Headquarters. Chet decided to take his microscope into headquarters and show it to Chief Ezra Colley. The keen-eyed, robust officer was an old friend of Fenton Hardy and his son. Many times the four had cooperated on cases. Sit down, the chief said cordially. I can see that you boys have something special on your minds. Another mystery? He leaned forward expectantly in his chair. It's possible, chief, replied Frank as he handed over the counterfeit bill. Quickly, the Hardys explained what had happened, then voiced their suspicion of the man who had just eluded them. Have there been any other reports of people receiving fake bills? Joe asked the officer. Chief Colleg nodded. Chet's not the first to be fooled, he replied. Since the Secret Service alerted us to watch for these $20 bills, well, we've had nearly a dozen complaints, but we've instructed the people involved not to talk about it. And why? Chet asked curiosity. curiosity. <laughs> it's part of our strategy. We hope to trap at least some of the gang by lulling them into a feeling of false security. The boys learned that Chet's description of a stocky stranger tallied with what the police had on file. He's a slippery one, the chief added. Sounds to me as if the man wears a different outfit each time he shoves a bill. Shoves, echoed Chet. A shover or a passer is a professional term for people who pass counterfeit money, Chief Colleague explained. He rubbed the bogus bill between his fingers. This is a clever forgery. 
He said, let's see what it looks like under your microscope, Chet. It took just a minute to rig and focus the microscope. Then under Chief Collins' directions, the boy scrutinized the faults in the bill. Look at that serial number, the chief pointed out. That's the large colored group of numbers that appears on the upper right and lower left portions of the bill. As the boys peered at the number, Chief Colick made some quick calculations on his desk pad. Divide the serial number by six. X, he went on, and in this case, the remainder is two. When the boys looked puzzled, the chief smiled. On the upper left portion of the note, you see a small letter, one that is not followed by a number. That's the check letter, and in this case, it's B. The boys listened as Chief Colleague further explained. If the letter B corresponds to the remainder 2 after you have done the division, means the bill is either genuine or a careful fake. The same way with the remainder. 1. The check letter would be A or G. And with the remainder three, the check letter C or I, and so on. Wow, some arithmetic, Chet remarked. Frank looked thoughtful. In this case, the test of the division check indicates the bill is genuine. Exactly, Chief Colleague said. And the portrait of Jackson is good. The border sometimes called lathe or scroll work, is excellent. But chief, Joe said puzzled, everything you've mentioned points toward the bills being the real thing. That's right. However, you'll see through the microscope that the lines in the portrait are slightly grayish, and the red and blue fibers running through the banknote have been simulated with colored ink. In turn, the boys peered through the microscope, observing the points the chief had called to their attention. Chief Colick snapped off the light in Chet's microscope, oh, pulled the bell out from under the clips that was holding it in place. He handed the, fright, the bell to Frank and at the same time gave him a genuine from his wallet. Now feel the difference in the paper quantity. Quality. He directed, Frank did so, and could tell immediately that the forged bill was much rougher and thicker than the genuine one. Just then, the chief's phone rang. He answered it, speaking quickly. When he hung up, Chief Colleague said, I must go out on a call, boys. Thanks for bringing in this bill. If you come across any others like it, or clues that might help the police, let me know. In the meantime, I'll relay your description of the suspect to the Secret Service, and also turn this bill over to them. Chief Colleague arose from his desk, and the boys walked out of the building with him. On the way, Joe said, I wonder if Oscar Smuff has heard of the counterfeiting racket. And is, er, 
working on it. I wouldn't be surprised, the chief sighed. That fellow never gives up. Uh, <laughs> the boys did not mention their encounter with Smurf earlier in the, in the afternoon. They were fairly certain that Oscar Smuff had trailed the man because he was a stranger in town and had been carrying a suitcase. The aspiring detective undoubtedly had jumped to the conclusion that the suitcase was filled with counterfeit money. When the chief had gone, Joe glanced at his watch. If we're going to meet Dad's train, we better get started. The three boys climbed into the jalopy and drove off. They arrived at the station just as the four o'clock train was coming to a halt. A moment later, they spotted Mr. Hardy alighting from the rear car. Dad! cried Frank and Joe and dashed to greet him, followed by Chet. Fenton Hardy, a tall, distinguished-looking man, and smiled broadly. I appreciate this special reception, and a ride home, too, he added, noticing Chet's jalopy in the lot. All right this way, sir, Chet grinned. Joe took his father's suitcase, and everyone to, went to the car. As they rode along, the boys gave Mr. Hardy an account of the afternoon's exciting events. The detective listened intently. In conclusion, Frank said, Dad, does your new case have anything to do with the counterfeiting ring? Mr. Hardy did not answer for a moment. His mind seemed to be focused on another matter. Finally, he said no, but I'll be glad to help you boys track down any clues to these counterfeiters. I have a feeling you'll be on the lookout for them. Oh, we sure will, Joe said emphatically. As they turned into the hardy driveway, Frank said, maybe more leads will show up around here. Fenton Hardy agreed. That's a strong possibility. They were met at the door by Aunt Gertrude, Mr. Hardy's unmarried sister. She was a tall, angular woman, somewhat peppy in manner, but extremely kind-hearted. Miss Hardy had arrived recently for one of her frequent long visits with the family. In her forthright manner, she was constantly making dire predictions about the dangers of sleuthing and the terrible fate awaiting anyone who was a detective. She greeted her brother affectionately as everyone went to the living room. With a sigh, she asked, Will you be home for a while this time, Fenton, before you have to go dash it off on another case? Chuckling, Mr. Hardy replied, I'll probably be around for a while, Gertrude, especially if the boys run into any more counterfeit money. What? What, Laura, did you hear that? Aunt Gertrude turned to a slim, attractive woman who had just entered the room. I did, Mrs. Hardy greeted her husband, then urged the boys to explain. After hearing of Chet's experience, 
Both women shook their heads in dismay. Well, the sooner those counterfeits are caught, caught the better, Aunt Gertrude declared firmly. That's what we figure, Auntie, Joe spoke up. We'll see what we can do, right, Frank? You bet. Chet added, grinning. With the Hardys on their trail, now those counterfeiters won't have a chance. Aunt Laura, and Laura and I will lose sleep worrying, Aunt Gertrude prophesied. <laughs> Frank and Joe exchanged wings, knowing that actually she and Mrs. Hardy were proud of the boys' sleuthing accomplishments, though sometimes fearful of the dangers they encountered. What delayed you today, Fenton? Aunt Gertrude asked her brother. Another case, I suppose. Mr. Hardy explained. There is a special matter I'm investigating, but I'm not at liberty to talk about it yet. His next remark Ark diverted the boys' attention from the counterfeiters. Frank and Joe, will you be free tomorrow to see the surprise I have for you both, he asked. It'll be ready late in the afternoon. We sure will, his sons exclaimed together. They knew what they hoped the surprise would be, but did not dare count on it. The brothers tried without success to coax a head from their family. All I can say is, Aunt Gertrude remarked, is you're mighty lucky boys. With a deep sigh, she added, but this prize certainly won't help my peace of mind. Oh, Auntie, said Joe, you don't really worry about us, do you? Oh, no, she exploded, only on weekdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Poor Chet left for home. He reminded Frank and Joe of his intention to apply to Elkerton Controls Limited for a job. Overhearing him, Mr. Hardy was immediately interested. So you want to enter the scientific field, Chet? He said. Good for you and lots of luck. The detective told the boys that the company, in addition to manufacturing controls, was engaged in secret experiments with advanced electronic controls. Not too long ago, he concluded, I met some of Elkerton's officers. It flashed through Chet's mind that he might ask the detective to make an appointment for him, but he decided not to. He wanted to get the job without an assist from anyone. Frank and Joe suggested that Chet come for them early the next afternoon. I have an idea, Chet exclaimed. Let's go earlier and take along a picnic lunch. We'll be right near Willow River. After I apply for a job, we can eat by the water. Then you fellows can help me collect bark and stone specimens. A microscope study, eh? Frank grinned. Okay, it's a deal. At supper, Aunt Gertrude commented wearily, There'll be two 
moons in the sky when Chet Morton settles down to a job. The others laughed. Then the conversation reverted once more to counterfeiting. Mr. Hardy backed up Chief Colling's statement that the bogus $20 bills being circulated were clever imitations. I heard that the Secret Service is finding it a hard case to crack, he added. Frank and Joe were wondering about their father's other case. They realized it must be extremely confidential and refrained from questioning him. In the middle of the night, Joe was suddenly awakened by a clattering sound. He leapt out of bed and rushed across the room to the front window. It was dark, moonless night, and for a moment Joe could see nothing. But suddenly he detected movement near the front door, then saw a shadowy figure running down the walk to the street. Hey! Joe called out, Who are you and what do you want? At the other end of the walk, the mysterious figure leapt onto a bicycle. It swerved, nearly throwing the rider, but he regained his balance and sped off into the darkness. What is going on? Joe cried out. No part of this episode may be reproduced without my personal permission. Rail Fan Roberts Reading Railroad is a production of Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions. And all, all podcast episodes are owned by Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions.